Wait, 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 wait. Oh, shoot. Oh, well. Anyway. <laughs> hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the third Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for your prescription to health with Dr. Stefan Esser. He's going to be talking about some important topics and take some of your questions. Please welcome him to the show. How are you? I'm ready to party. I'm excited to be back with you and uh, ready to have fun. I know you've been having some fun adventures. Yeah, I went to True North. It was wonderful. Oh, wonderful. What was the highlight there? Well, any takeaways for the viewers or have you already talked about those? Oh, no, I did actually did a whole okay. show with, with Chef Ramses Bravo about oh, it. Okay. And, um, and well, you know, the takeaways is, you know, man, if you're struggling with a, a lifestyle disease, with food addiction, with excess weight, water fasting at True North, or even just eating at True North is the way to go. It's, it really is. They should call it True North Healing Center instead of True North oh. Health Center. Love it. I agree 100%. I think it's a wonderful way to reset the computer, control, alt, delete, boom, and get it going. So good. I'm glad you had that opportunity. So should we jump right in? Yeah. Absolutely. Are, are you good? Yeah, because you need to attend to something I can take over for a minute here. So no, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell if I was live, but Charles, my husband is saying I am. I just wasn't seeing it on my thing. So <laughs> okay. I just I just wanted to be sure we were. Like, are you alive? Like checking your no, pulse alive actually, or what? I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> I'm no, just I, kidding. I, I, that's so funny. You know, the old joke when, when the, the, the person takes your pulse and they go, either you're dead or my watch stopped. That's right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I just wasn't well, seeing so I thought it was valuable to like go back. Talking about True North, that's a great segue. I wanted to go back and talk just briefly before we take Q&A on our friend Sodium, uh, you know, or maybe not our friend Sodium. And because I think it's so easy for, you know, salt to sneak back into the diet in first small quantities and then progressively in large quantities, even in people who are largely eating a plant-based program. And I would argue that there probably are some positive ways to use salt too. And I want to talk about that as well. Uh, let's first just talk about the whole concept of salt, right? Salt is a cation and they are... Uh, are a lot of very important processes in the body, uh, in particular, the nerves, right? All of our nerves that require uh, the right balance of sodium and potassium. If you go back to your basic physiology, you all remember how there was this sodium potassium channel pumps that would pump sodium this way and potassium this way, and that would prompt the nerves to fire, right? And then this information travels down. That's what allows me to move my hands, right? For my brain to work, et cetera. Salt is necessary for all of these things. And so by itself, just like sugar, sometimes people are like, oh, sugar, you know, this horrible, dirty word. Uh, it's like, no, actually, this is important for human physiologic function and existence. And where we get into trouble is the use of salt in excess and the use of salt, quote unquote, salt by itself, I would argue, rather than consuming foods whole foods, right? The fruits, the veggies, et cetera, that have drawn up some salt from the ground and now it's incorporated into their structure, et cetera. And so salt does three things that I just want to talk about briefly that I think are worth remembering. Number one, it increases appetite. And this is so worthwhile conversing about uh, because that can be both a pro and a con. So let's say you're somebody who struggles with underweight, right? Which is not very common, but let's say it's present uh, or a very poor appetite um, chronically. Now, first of all, you need a good workout to make sure you don't have some other disease process, cancers, tumors, 
weird stuff that's suppressing your appetite, et cetera. Uh, but salt can be used in a positive way for individuals who are not consuming enough. And I would argue, especially where it might be used in a healthful way, um, in small quantity, might be in children who are extremely active and are eating a fully salt, oil, sugar-free program of whole foods. And so they're eating large quantities of food, but it's important that they get enough total calories. And they might go, well, you know, I already had one bowl of the rice. I'm kind of done. But if you add a little bit of soy sauce, right, or a little spritz of aminos on there or something, all of a sudden the kid eats another half bowl of, of rice uh, or their beans. And that might be a healthful way in that specific population to stimulate and spur more consumption of those foods to make sure they get adequate total calories. You might also use it, let's say, in a person who's transitioning uh, right from kind of meat, dairy, and fried foods more toward a healthy living program, but doesn't have any major diseases, right? But it's just like, well, I want to do this for the animals. I want to do it for the environment. Let's say they're in their early 20s or something and don't have any major problems. Uh, maybe a little bit of salt in there it keeps their, you know, keeps them on board with kind of like, okay, this tastes good, right? Quote unquote, similar to some of the salty food I used to eat, but now I'm getting at least all the other health properties, the micronutrients, the fiber, et cetera. But on the flip side, in a society in which one out of two Americans will be obese by the 2030, right around the corner, right? And obesity is a primary epidemic of all these other diseases. Salt is a danger, right? Because it stimulates appetite and prompts you to eat more than you really need and prompts you to eat beyond arguably where you should be stopping. So combined, especially with oil and with sugar, salt becomes extraordinarily dangerous. And we see that in the chips. We see it in the bread. We see it even in things like our tomato sauce that you might buy off the shelf. It has loads of salt, but also loads of sugar added to it. So it prompts both aspects of the brain to get all worked up and thus you want more. And so we just want to be conscientious of that, that it does increase appetite. And if your goals are weight loss, I would argue one of the best ways to help you with that whole addictive process is to get the salt out because immediately you're like, oh, well, I'm full. So when people do my four-week program that I have online, they often complain and say, well, I don't really like the taste of the food that much. If I could just add some salt, it would be palatable. And I go, well, that's the problem. You're really not hungry. Your body is beginning to break down your stored fats. You don't want to add the salt to stimulate you further. Now, if you insist that you're going to use some salt in your cooking, your food preparation, et cetera, which on average I no longer do, but if you choose to do that, my recommendation would be that you add the salt at the table, meaning, right, that you have, if let's say you're using the soy sauce, for example, get the half salt soy sauce, put it in one of those little spray bottles, and right before you're going to eat the rice, you go spritz spritz on it. So now it's right on the top of the rice. You taste it a lot. Rather than preparing the food, dumping gorbs of this soy sauce or amino acids or pure salt in there otherwise uh, while cooking, because then you kind of lose all that flavoring. And then at the table, you're still like, wow, it's not very salty, but really you've already added a lot. So just want to be very careful with that salt because of that in particular, you're going to overeat, eat more than you need, et cetera. Number next is that it increases fluid H2O retention, right? So it prompts you to retain fluid. And, you know, we should be eating less than 1800 milligrams of salt per day. Uh, some would even argue less than 1500 milligrams of salt per day. If you eat a purely SOS free program, on average, you're going to get around six to 800 milligrams of salt per day, which is more than adequate, even in a subtropical environment with some sweating, should be totally fine still with your salt reserves. Now, fluid retention in our bodies, right? You've noticed if you go to the water and you swim, uh, or if you're in a tub for a long period of time, you get all wrinkly. 
Well, that's because there's this whole diffusion going on where salt and water is changing where it is. If you remember that little science experiment as a kid, right, where you have the bag and the colored ink in it and all this, and it moved across the different membranes, that's what's occurring. And so the water is going to be attracted to where it's the saltiest, where it's the highest concentration. So when you consume more salt, you increase the concentration in your bloodstream, receptors in your kidneys become aware of it, and they say, quick, hold on to all the water, right? We've got to hold on to it. Again, that's why when people do Chef AJ's programs or my four-week program, they're like, man, the first couple of days, I was peeing like a racehorse. I was always peeing at night, middle of the day, et cetera. Well, that's because their body was diuresing, getting rid of the excess fluid, and naturesing, meaning getting rid of unnecessary sodium that it had held on to. And so when you increase fluid retention, you increase the amount of volume in your bloodstream, you drive up blood pressure, on average, 1,000 milligrams of extra salt per day increases blood pressure by 5 to 10 points, right, on your systolic. It's important to know that. That's about the same amount as one blood pressure medicine like metoprolol or lisinopril. Um, and so 1,000 milligrams of extra salt per day. And in America, around 90% of men and women consume more than two to four times the upper, that amount of salt, right? They're consuming four or 5,000 milligrams of salt per day. Well, on average, so they are retaining all this fluid and that's driving the blood pressure up. Number next is with regards to pain. When you increase fluid retention, your soft tissues, the muscles, the ligaments, the fat layers, et cetera, are retaining more fluid. Thus, there's more pressure on the nerves that are in those soft tissues. And you're more likely to have chronic diffuse pain throughout your body just as a result of this fluid retention. And um, the other one that we don't talk much about, right, but is an interesting little articles that are out there about the glycocalyx, there we go. And so this is a framework uh, uh, inside of your blood vessels. And this little framework uh, kind of helps keep the blood vessels, the arteries expanded and open. And when you consume large quantities of salt, it damages the glycocalyx and thereby is also interrelated to the increased risk of atherosclerotic disease or heart disease. Right. And so that salt also, as all the sodium is rushing through your bloodstreams, it can be caustic and irritating to the blood vessel wall and just by itself increasing the likelihood of atherosclerotic disease occurring. So there are three things I want to talk about about sodium. Thoughts, comments, questions. Yeah. Well, first, Dr. Esser, when you say salt, you mean any salt? Because then people will say, well, what about Celtic sea salt? What about Himalayan salt? What about miso? Miso isn't, I mean, right. does it, is, is, is salt is salt is salt? Right. I mean, I think so from a physiologic perspective with regards to fluid retention, salt is salt is salt. With regards to glycocalyx damage, you know, most of the studies that I'm familiar with were done with salt, true table salt, but I'm assuming the results would be the same. With regards to appetite, you know, salt is salt is salt. Yeah. I mean, it's it's still going to stimulate your appetite. You might argue that salt in different forms comes with other possible benefits, quote, some of the fermented miso, some of the you know, the Himalayan or pink salt with different electrolytes with it, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it still is stimulating you in these same ways. Uh, and so you just need to be very conscientious. So if you are someone who's struggled with food addiction, right? And that's pretty simple. Look in the mirror, ask yourself, have you retained weight for years? Do you binge eat? Do you, you know, feel guilty after meals, all these sort of things? Um, you know, well, then you need to be very careful with salt because it is a gateway, right, to excess calories and to very quickly just going downhill. And also don't forget, your brain and taste buds become accommodated to a certain level of salt, right? So as I'm drinking this green juice right now, which is uh, celery and uh, a little spinach and uh, some cucumbers and lemon and a touch of apple, uh, it tastes very salty to me. 
But why does it taste salty? It's the celery, right? Which we know actually has quite a bit of salt in it. But if I'm consuming the standard American diet and I were to drink this, I'm not going to taste the salt in the celery. It doesn't taste salty at all. And so you can become accommodated, or as you suggested, when you went to True North, right, you were able to kind of reset some of those taste buds, those neural synapses and their relationships. So yeah, from my perspective, salt is salt is salt. Um, but, you know, could you argue that refined, you know, table salt doesn't have any health benefits whatsoever versus if you had a little Himalayan pink or a little miso or things like that, maybe, but, but miso, still can still raise, miso can still raise your blood pressure, right? Because exactly. it, right. it's benign and because certain okay. plant-based doctors think it's okay, they can use it ad libitum and yeah, that's no. not necessarily true. Absolutely. And if you're somebody who struggles with blood pressure, you want to remove all salt products, all salt, 100% for a period of time and try to reset things, get off your blood pressure medicines and normalize your, you know, fluid retention. Uh, 100%. Absolutely. And yeah, don't get sucked in because that's, you know, you all of a sudden you're adding a whole bottle of the coconut aminos and you're like, why is my blood pressure not coming down? Well, it's right. still salt. Dr. Clarence Grimm, who's considers himself one of the world's leading experts on hypertension, always says where there is no salt, there is no high blood pressure. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty powerful. You're right. It's a powerful appetite stimulant. And I just dropped something in the chat. I don't know if you can open it, but I always wondered how to look at the research because in, in, this, in the Journal of Nutrition, they have a paper that says salt promotes passive overconsumption in, of dietary fat in humans and that people that eat salt eat about 11% more calories. And those generally come from fat. This, yeah. it's, I put it in the chat if you want to take it out. Sometime. Yeah, I just tried to pull it up. Very nice. I like because, it. Because um, I, I think people don't realize how much more they eat when there's salt in the food because it makes it taste better. That's right. Well, and we know that inherently because any restaurant you go to, right, it's insanely oversalted, right? And that's because they want you to buy more of their product, drink more of their drinks, right? You know, so on and so forth. The last thing they want you to do is to leave and go, that wasn't very good. And most people associate, you know, taste quality, right, with uh, salt quantity, you know, whether it be the salt, the sugar or the fat, unfortunately. Well, people yeah. say if they don't eat salt, where are they going to get their iodine? Yeah. And so obviously, first of all, the major, a lot of salt that is used in our society is not iodized salt, right? Because the concern from the federal government anyway is that people will get excessive amounts of iodine. So a lot of the salt that's used in restaurants and places like that is not iodized. Um, and that's number one. Number two is so you can certainly if you uh, you know, small quantities of seaweed, right, is a wonderful way to get some iodine in your diet. So things like wakame or a little bit of dulse, some of those flakes, you know, et cetera, on your salad is a nice, simple way to get it. Um, you know, again, you and, and making sure that you're intermittently every year getting your thyroid function tested, right? Because that's where the iodine is most crucial uh, with regards to forming those uh, thyroid hormones. Thank you. You're going to talk about Ozempic now? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. We were going to talk about that. What a hot topic. Why do you think it's such a hot topic? Like, why do you think it's so in right now? Well, because it, it, ever since people be started becoming overweight, that's the number one personal health goal or personal goal, it seems. I mean, think of every New Year's resolution. It's always lose weight. Right. Well, and, don't, and everybody's always looking for the quick fix, the fast pill, right? The, the magic, right? I mean, I, that's in from time immemorial. Yeah, everybody's looking for that. So uh, I think, you know, uh, whenever I look at these medications, the first thing I want to know is the following, right? How well understood are they? How long they've been around? How, what is the mechanism of action? Um, what are the potential side effects? And are there other ways that I can achieve the same benefits without the risks that might come with the drug? And so that's usually my first thought process, you know, all those things. And so 
We look at these medications, uh, the whole class there, these GLP-1 agonists, they're called, uh, they're essentially binding to specific uh, receptor sites and influencing uh, the production of various hormones in the body and the sensitivity with regards to insulin and all this other stuff. But there are also these central nervous system effects we don't fully understand. And so these central nervous system effects appear to suppress, you know, they make satiety come earlier, uh, supposedly suppressing appetite in some ways. But part of how they also work is they slow gut motility. And as a result, if your gut is not peristalsing, because that's review, it's always good to go back to the basics, right? And that is when you put something in your mouth, it goes from the oral pharynx, from the mouth into the esophagus down the esophagus to a sphincter, which is a little tight area of the esophagus, that sphincter has to open up and allow that food product, that bolus, we call it, of saliva, right, in a food to then travel into the stomach. Then that ideally that sphincter, that little valve kind of snugs up again so that the acid doesn't come right back up in the esophagus. And now in the stomach, the body has sensors and those sensors evaluate the concentration of what you've just eaten. If it's extremely concentrated, it keeps it in the stomach longer. And the stomach has rugae, there are rough edges on it, and it's moving. It's moving like that. And as it does so, it is mixing the food with your hydrochloric acid, right? This incredibly acidic environment that's degrading and breaking down with mechanical stimulus of the movement of the stomach and the acid, the physiology of that area. And so it's breaking all of this down and then that travels into the small intestines. In the small intestines, your pancreas squirts in a whole bunch of digestive enzymes, amylase, lipase, et cetera, trypsin, all these different things that help digest proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. So now you've got this slurry of chemicals uh, and the pancreas also produces some bicarbonate, uh, which tries to, right, to, to get rid of the, some of the effect of the acid. So the acid doesn't burn your intestinal tract. And so you've got this bicarbonate, which is very alkaline, the acid coming from the stomach, the pancreatic enzymes, all this stuff's in there. And then that travels through the intestines through a process called peristalsis, where the muscles go squirt, squirt, squirt. If you ever remember those little kids' toys that are like full of fluid and you like push down on one side and it like squirts out the other side, like it moves through like a slinky almost, but it's like a little gooey little toy. That's what's happening to your poop right? And as it's traveling through, and as it's traveling through the small intestines, all the nutrients are being absorbed. Once it gets to your large intestines, it's predominantly water and some salt sort of back and forth across that membrane. And, uh, you know, along with other things that your bacteria are forming for you that you're absorbing, serotonin, et cetera. And so that then travels out. But if you slow the movement of the poop, right, of this, all this food products you've consumed, what happens is it backs up. And as it's backed up, now it's essentially the stomach feels more full because it can't empty. Because if your stomach can't empty, right, it sends receptors, send information back to the brain saying, I'm full. That's the whole theoretical way, and right, for example, in which people who have gastric bypass, that it works. You take this nice big, excuse me, stomach and you turn it with the Rue NY into this tiny little nothing stomach that has very little space. So when you put the food into it, they're immediately full and they have no more desire for eating. So this is doing it downstream by blocking or slowing the peristalsis. Right away, you should be able to go, well, oh gosh, that's how it works. And that's what we think, right? We know that it slows gut you know, emptying, but we don't understand fully the other mechanisms, how it works on the central nervous system, what it does you know, as regards to hormones released in the brain and all these other things. And so it's, 
that right away gets me out of the mix. I'm like, I'm out because we don't even fully understand it. So that's the problem. There are drugs out there that we are now using that we don't fully understand the mechanism of action and that are not specific to just one receptor site. We think that they work in this way, but they appear to also have all these other side effects. This is very important for your viewers to understand. And remember, hundreds, literally, you can Google search, just go to wikipedia.com and look up number of drugs removed from the market. In the last 10, 15 years, hundreds of drugs have been removed from the market because of their negative side effects. Drugs that started out with huge parties and celebrations and ticker tape dropping and massive you know, earnings by the drug company and people loving them and doctors prescribing them left and right, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, people are dying. Oh gosh, they're getting lymphoma. Or, oh my goodness, the side effect was this. Or, oh, they were all, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, and we're pulling that drug, right? After the company had to pay $500 million worth of lawsuits. But don't worry, they'd already made $2 billion on the drug to begin with. And that they write that in as kind of like, well, we expect we'll lose this much if there's a lawsuit, but we're going to make this much, so we'll all be fine. And that's how they function. So if you look, that's why I posted a couple of weeks ago about one of these articles now coming out showing how Ozempic increases the risk of gastric sort of, uh, you know, fluid, fluid retention, um, you know, all of these problems by 400 to 900%, which is pretty crazy. Um, and the problem is, right, you, if you slow the movement of food too much through the gut, you end up with stomach paralysis, you end up with pancreatitis. You end up with bowel obstructions, right? I just pulled it up now to show you, right? It was like 300% increase in stomach paralysis, 900% increased risk of pancreatitis, 400% increased risk of bowel obstruction. So, uh, you know, so now we've got, like what did I say at the very beginning? A drug whose mechanism of action is not fully understood, that appears to have potential and real side effects. And now the last thing I had said is I would only use a drug if there's not another method to treat it. And what is another method to treat this that is as effective or more effective without the side effects? You guessed it, Chef AJ's and my programs, right? Intensive food modification that not only helps you to lose weight, but has incredibly powerful other effects as well, right? Everything from your sex life to your sleep, to your depression, to your, you know, the list goes on and on, right? Your cardiovascular risk, your cancer risk, all these other things. Ozempic doesn't do anything for any of those other areas. All it does is help you to drop a little bit of weight, but as a risk, as a potential side effect, lots of them, and not fully understood what the long-term implications are. So, so yeah, so I'm out and I don't prescribe it and I don't encourage it and I don't think it's a good choice at all. Um, and uh, go ahead, what were you gonna say? Is there even, is there even any proof that the weight that people lose through Ozempic is weight that stays off? Well, of course not, right? Because if they go back to the same food that they're eating prior, right, the weight comes right back on. And if they stop the medication, right, then they lose that benefit as well. And then also the question will be long-term, if you do continue to use the medication and you continue to eat unhealthy food, will the body at some point hormonally kind of find a new set point and then just start putting the weight back on? We don't know yet, you know? So yeah, well, so remember, I think- Remember FenFen, how that was a panacea and then it was- causing heart, heart lung defects. Of course. Yeah. I mean, people were going into all kinds of abnormal heart rhythms and dying. And I mean, it, this is, this is real stuff. And, and the beauty is we have the answer. We don't have to go to Charleston's. We don't have to go to, you know, shamanism. We don't have to go to random PhDs in a lab creating something that's incredibly artificial and potentially quite dangerous for us. We just have to go back to what we're intended for. We're clearly intended for eating on average in large proportion, you know, 
massive quantities of whole plant-based foods that are solve oil and sugar-free, that are clean and getting our regular exercise. The body will take care of itself and we'll feel great. And we'll wake up in the morning feeling good and healthy and energetic. And we'll go, wow, how is this possible? I feel this good at the age of 65, at the age of 42, at the age of 39. And we'll rediscover what we're meant to feel like, which is good in our own skin. Your body is so incredibly powerful. You just have to give it the tools that it needs and desires. Yeah. I think people don't like that it's not as quick if they do it the way we recommend. Well, but I would argue with that. I mean, people who do my four-week program, men lose 20 to 40 pounds in a month if they do it 100%, and women lose 15 to 25. That's right on target with what I've heard with some of the results of Ozempic. You know, I mean, yeah, people are losing up to 30 pounds, but those are people who are quite obese, and that's the same thing with people on my program and on your program. You know, yeah. And so, you know, gosh, guys, eat a bunch of big salads, have a bunch of fruit, get a little exercise, your body will take care of itself. You will lose that weight very rapidly, very quickly. And even more importantly, you're going to lose all the other diseases uh, outside of just the weight. So it's a win, 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 and a double, triple win. Yeah. And your way doesn't have the side effects or the cost that Ozempic does. That's right. None of those peristaltic issues. In fact, people have more bowel movements, right? They get rid of all the toxins that they're retaining. And I think that will be the other thing that we may never understand about drugs like this, that slow peristalsis. And that is when you keep, you know, kind of rotting flesh in your bowels longer, you increase your risk of colon cancer. Studies are very clear on this. And so when you consume, right, these meat-based foods, these processed meat, red meat in particular, it is the degradation byproducts in your gut that increase your risk of colon cancer. So now you're going to take a drug that slows peristalsis even more, and you're still going to eat unhealthfully. Well, what's that going to do to those people's cancer risk long-term? We don't know. Nobody knows because this drug hasn't been around long enough, but theoretically we might expect it to increase that risk as well. Well, in your program, it's okay to get Esser face because then you'll get a nice face. <laughs> that's right. Well, and you know, and that's the beauty here, right? Is what you and I are promoting uh, is not only the weight loss, but let's not forget that with that food that people are consuming, they're getting micronutrient, phytonutrient rich foods. Those foods reduce inflammation at the systemic level. Those foods promote collagen retention and formation and elasticity with the high quantities of those anthocyanin-rich pigment foods, along with the high quantities of the vitamin C that's coming from all the different fruits and vegetables you're consuming. That is a very different than just kind of losing a bunch of weight and your face sags and you're like, what the heck just happened? Instead of the people that really eat well, you see a difference. They glow. Even if you now see their cheekbones, right? They are glowing and they have a vitality that's very different. Absolutely. Uh, there's a, a question from a live viewer, Latif. Is there a correlation between consuming salt and either hyper or hypothyroidism? I don't know any correlation between hyperthyroidism and salt uh, consumption. That's a great question and one that I can research further. That's great. All right. Well, let's jump into the questions that were sent in by the live viewers. And if you're watching this on Facebook or Twitter, I can't see your comments, at least not during the live show. So please consider watching on YouTube so that I can uh, see your questions and comments. Uh, this is from Anonymous. It's a question about walking on a treadmill, incline walking. If I currently do a 6% incline for 30 minutes and my goal is to reach a 10% or more incline, what do you recommend? In other words, do you increase the 1% incline every so often, every certain weeks? And do you have to be concerned about hurting your back if you do this at a higher incline? So 
the usual sports medicine recommendations are not to increase whatever you're doing, whether it be in volume, speed, or height, et cetera, by more than 10% per week. So do the math on that, and you would just increase by 10% per week and should be have a lower risk. Why? Because you're allowing your body to accommodate to the changes that are occurring. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, most people find that if they're walking on an incline, right, it naturally prompts them to walk a little bit more forward flexed. So if they have disc issues in the low back, it may flare them a little bit. But if it's more of a spinal stenosis issue, walking slightly forward should feel better. So I would increase by 10% per week to allow your body to accommodate and just kind of track your symptoms and see the response. And let's not forget that although walking is a good way to get some cardiovascular exercise, it does not do a lot for your core. And the core is absolutely essential to continue to strengthen for good low back stability and decreasing the risk of chronic back pain. Great, thank you. And here's another exercise question from Paul. How intensive an exercise regimen is needed to see any significant decrease in resting heart rate? Is 30 minutes a day of cardio enough? Should it be moderate intensity? So I think it depends on what your goals are, right? So if you're just wanting to drop your resting heart rate, there are a number of different factors that play into that, right? Certainly one of them is going to be the amount of fluid that you're retaining. So talking about sodium, why? Because the body senses that increased pressure. And so it's going to tend to pump a little bit faster rate. Uh, number two, the different medications that you may be taking, or if food products, if you're consuming caffeine, et cetera, can drive your heart rate up, obviously. Also things like your thyroid function, right? If you have an elevated thyroid and it's dysfunctional, that can throw off your heart rate as well. Um, so medications, thyroid function, and then uh, as we talked about, um, or, you want, or you asked the question about exercise. So uh, I don't know the exact amount of time that it takes for the heart rate to change, but my most recommendations would be eight to 12 weeks before you should expect to see a significant change. 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise is the recommended amount per day and try to achieve 150 minutes per week for just general well-being. It likely would have some benefit in reducing your heart rate, but if you want to reduce it faster and more, you're going to want to shoot for that moderate level of intensity and perhaps go more for 40 minutes to an hour per day um, and do that four or five days per week and kind of see your body's response. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I think the key is to kind of track it. Uh, so you may want to get one of the tracking watches and, uh, you know, track your heart rate throughout the day and then see where you are and where you start and then go from there. Nice. Thanks. A lot of exercise questions today, including this one from Tammy. What do you think of barefoot shoes? Uh, I think that we're probably intended to have more connection with the ground. And I think that walking barefoot allows your feet to work more of the intrinsic muscles, which are the small muscles in between the bones. And this allows you to retain more muscle mass in your feet, more proprioception back to the brain. So likely better for balance, better for overall foot health. Uh, the risk people run is going too far too fast, going into barefoot shoe wear and then running on concrete or asphalt uh, for long durations or increased quantities of time. And that increases the risk of stress fractures in your feet. So you want to be careful with that. Coming out of Florida, I love to go to the beach and walk barefoot, right? And kind of really feel that sand, you know, et cetera. 
Uh, I'm also blessed to have a big yard, an area where I go out and walk in the grass barefoot, right? So uh, the more you can do that, certainly the better, but just be careful not to go again from zero to 100 into the barefoot shoe wear and uh, still try to walk on softer surfaces with more unstable positioning. That's going to be the best for you rather than a flat concrete surface where you're just banging your bones down on that area. Especially if you're over the age of 45, often you begin to lose some of the fat in the bottom of your foot. Uh, and so that's why it is important to try to build up those intrinsic muscles. Some of the exercises you can do for that would be towel pickups, take a little like Terry towel, put it on the ground, pick it up with your toes, drop it, pick it up with your toes, drop it, and do that for like two minutes, uh, twice a day, or you can get marbles and uh, get about 20 little marbles and you pick them up and put them in a cup, put them up with your toes. And you do that if you're ever sitting at the computer or watching television, just be careful not to lose your marbles. Thank uh, uh, uh. uh. Get the hook. <laughs> okay. Um, this is from Carlene. I'm scheduled for knee replacement surgery next year. Is there anything I can be doing right now to help my post-operative rehabilitation process go well? Yeah. I mean, I think if you have end-stage bone-on-bone arthritis with loss of the cartilage layer, et cetera, then doing a replacement uh, can be very helpful and get you pain-free. If you still have some cartilage in there, if you have moderate borderline on advanced and you still have good range of motion, don't forget that lipogems is a great procedure, L-I-P-O-G-E-M-S. And so lipogems, you can do it. It's around the country. It's an Italian-based, FDA-cleared. You know, We harvest fat and use it as a source of stem cell. I recently had two people actually fly in to do it with me because I charge probably the least of anyone in the country. Uh, but there are a bunch of docs around the country that do it. And it can give you three to eight years of decreased knee pain, uh, even in people with bordering on you know, progressively our advanced arthritis. Now, if you decide, well, no, you just want to get it replaced, um, you know, the exercises that I usually recommend to people include range of motion exercises, trying to retain the range of motion as much as possible, lots of lateral hip, sideline, leg lifts, clamshells, and lots of water work because you're not putting lots of force through the joint. So lots of swimming, aqua, aqua jogging, those are great things to do uh, to maintain strength, cardiovascular fitness, and flexibility around the joint. Uh, but again, research lipogems. Uh, I'm a huge fan because I've been doing it for eight years and seen people now six, eight years out still with no return of their pain. Uh, so pretty darn good. They've got over a hundred studies, but you can Google search my website, essersports, if you want.com, essersports.com. And it's got a whole page on lipogems with the science articles, et cetera. Great. Thank you. Uh, this is from Marianne. If you don't have a gallbladder, is it even more beneficial to eat whole food plant-based? I don't know that it's even more beneficial. It's uh, still extremely beneficial, uh, you know, for you. But as far as if you're saying, if you're without a gallbladder, is it even more beneficial to eat plant-based as compared to eating the standard American diet? Sure, of course, uh, right? Because you're eating a healthier, balanced program with less of these extremely saturated fats, et cetera. Uh, so the whole system has to work a little less than it would otherwise, right? With regards to the whole, the liver and the production of uh, gall and all these sort of things. So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, whether you have a gallbladder or not, this is still a supreme way of eating to maximize, you know, survival, you know, and vitality. Right. So, but doesn't there something happen with fat when you have a gallbladder that either you can't eat as much of it or something like that? Well, so the, what happens, right, is your liver produces bile, which is then stored in the gallbladder. And then every time that you consume something fatty, 
uh, right? That gallbladder squirts a little bit of that bile into your intestinal tract where it then binds around the fat and helps you absorb uh, those fats. So, you know, arguably people, it's very interesting because I've seen people have their gallbladder out, you do extremely well and just fine. And I've seen other people really struggle, right? Where they begin to have some short gut syndromes, they have difficulty with absorbing fats and all these other things. Uh, but historically, the majority of people do okay and still are able to kind of absorb their fats adequately and not have major complications. Wow, thank you. That that's why gall cholecystectomy is how the joke is. It's the general surgeon's way to pay college tuition for their kids because they just do them left and right. So, but <laughs> not, yeah, that's not ideal. We want to save people from that. And again, in America, the leading reason to end up with gallstones and have your gallbladder out is, of course, all of the fat consumed. Right, the incredibly unhealthy American diet. Uh, you remove that, the majority of gallstones just dissipate, and we don't have an issue. I've, I've seen a lot of people that after they lose weight, especially quickly, then all of a sudden they need to get their gallbladder out. Have you heard about that phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, and I've only largely seen that in people who lose weight in kind of the, you know, a ketogenic way or things of that kind. I've not seen it in people who eat a plant-based program, but I imagine that's, uh, it's possible. Yeah. Okay. But yes, there is an increased risk of doing, if you have rapid weight loss in the literature, there's an increased risk of a formation of gallstones, right? Because you're, you're, you're essentially mobilizing so much stored fat uh, that now it increases the likelihood of gallstones forming, right? Because there's all that in the bloodstream. But that's why I would argue that eating a whole food plant-based diet in order to facilitate weight loss is that much better for you because now all that fiber is binding up to a lot of the excess fat that you're mobilizing in your intestinal tract and you're pooping it out. And you're also not adding more fat to the fat that you're already mobilizing. You know, versus the person who's eating a ketogenic diet, let's say, so all this fat, plus they're mobilizing their own fat, that's just overwhelming uh, to the body. Gallstones hurt as much as kidney stones? Uh, I have not had either one, but I've heard that both are absolutely miserable. And certainly I've heard more that kidney stones are like labor, um, but it, it may be more about where the pain is located, right? Because <laughs> the, gall, the kidney stones tend to cause that back, that deep back pain, and the gallstones more kind of up under the liver a little bit more, but uh, we don't want either one for anybody. <laughs> right. Um, Sylvia says, my husband's blood work was Well, I guess it's just me for right now. I'm not sure we just had some technical difficulties. So I was just reaching out to Chef AJ, but here I am. So let's keep talking a little bit. You know, I want to talk briefly about green juice. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I think it's an easy way to get a few more greens in. There's some people who argue that consuming greens purely in a chewed fashion, like a whole salad or steamed, is the only way we should go. Uh, I would argue that we should consume greens where and when possible. And the more times we can get those greens in, the better whether it be, oh, hi, Chef AJ, welcome hi. to my show. Welcome hi. to my show, Chef AJ. <laughs> I 
Um, I froze, not you, but did you even hear the question? That was so funny. No, but go ahead. Well, no, it was so funny because I had asked this very specific question and I didn't know that I froze. And I'm thinking, oh, this must be a really hard one because he's not saying anything. (laughs) I'll repeat it again from, uh, I believe it's Sylvia about her husband's blood work before he was vegan, even before vegan consistently showed, and I don't know what any of these mean, MCV, MCH, RDW in the high range, RBC, platelet, and WBC below range. What does it mean and how can it be resolved? This was prior to him becoming a whole food or since? Yeah, it's still now. It sounds like it's still now, but it was also prior. And I don't know what any of those Blood yeah, all, right. All those blood tests are derived from a, what's called a complete blood count, a CBC, which is a basic uh, evaluation of kind of red blood cell health, platelet health. Remember that your bloodstream is composed of water, proteins, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, you know, along with a few other things. And uh, so when you have a lot of variability in the size of the red blood cells, that's what that MCH and M. CV and all this, it's the volume of different blood cells, et cetera. Um, that variability can be related to different vitamin deficiencies. And so the first thing to do is check all the B vitamins, check the thyroid function, um, and kind of make sure that all of those are firing and, as, and you know, you got adequate amounts. Uh, platelets, same thing. And then if all of the nutritional things are fine, you may need more of a workup, what's called a peripheral smear, seeing a hematologist, or they can make sure that there's not something going on in the bone marrow, any sort of lymphomas or leukemias uh, that are leading to abnormal uh, sizes, quantities, and shapes of the red blood cells and the platelets. So a good workup first by your primary care, and then an evaluation by a hematologist to, just to make sure there's nothing else more concerning going on. If those are all completed and they're all normal, then just monitoring those, you know, once a year and say, yeah, they're still the same. It's like, okay, great. Well, if they're all still the same and he otherwise feels great, has good energy, et cetera, then I'm not worried. Right. When you, you know, you were drinking some green juice, what is in it and what juicer do you use and recommend? Oh yeah. So this green juice is uh, celery, cucumbers, a lemon, and a little touch of apple in it. And I just had a nice 20 something ounce, um, nice big Mason jar full of 24 ounces, but well, that was a lot. And, uh, so, you know, what I was saying, right. When you were, before you joined my show, um, I was saying some people argue, right. We should only be getting greens and chewing them and eating them. And my argument is I think we should get greens in any way that we can and are able to, and whether that be greens in a juice, greens in a smoothie, greens, steamed greens, you know, fresh greens, dried green, whatever. I mean, right. Raw, big salads. I do think that we should prioritize those raw salads and those big quantities of raw enzymatically alive and whole greens. Um, But I think that, hey, look, uh, the more you get that greens into you and alkalize your body and feed your cells, the better. Uh, So if you, you know, so for example, if I'm going to go, well, I want something to drink and I don't want just water. uh, Okay, fine. Go make a green juice, right? Because this is 90 plus percent, nothing but water, but I'm also getting the micronutrients. So I'm still washing my cells and flooding them with some of these micronutrients. Um, and so this juicer that I used is a green power, I think green power juicer. It's a cold press juicer that I have, but I've got about several different types of juicers. Um, so we could do a juicer show one day and do different juicers. But I think at the heart of it, I tell people, if you're going to use it, then great, you know, start there. So whether it be a centrifugal or interlocking blade or a grinding or a, you know, a classic, um, well, what are the hydraulic juicers I'm blanking? You know, all of those, whatever you're willing to use, use it. That's where I'd start. 
I mean, if you use it regularly, then you could argue, well, is it best to have a grinding juicer that just grinds it rough? Then you put it in the bag and put it in the hydraulic press, and then you get all the micronutrients undisturbed. You know, sure, great. If you're willing to do all that work, that's fine. But start where you're willing to start and, and go from there. But adding a nice fresh glass of green juice once a day or twice a day would be outstanding for the majority of all of us. You know? The best juicer is the one you'll use. That's it. Yep, makes sense. This is uh, from Anonymous. How much of dementia do you think can be reversed and what do you recommend to reverse it? Yeah, I think dementia is very difficult to reverse. I think once you've had uh, damage to the nerves and to the central nervous system, it's extraordinarily difficult to turn it around. Um, obviously, dementia can be caused by different processes, everything from vascular dementia, it's called, where there's inadequate blood flow to the tissues, to uh, various uh, toxic exposures. Uh, but my understanding that the majority of dementia is minimally reversible, and that is why prevention needs to be the primary focus for all of us. There will naturally be see some senescence, some slowing down of our central nervous system as we age, a little difficulty with words here and there, these sorts of things. But the severe debilitating dementia that we are seeing just sweeping across our nation and the world with the aging population who consumes a standard Western diet is very concerning. And so we all need to do everything we can to reduce generalized inflammation, to promote neural longevity, uh, which uh, is all the basic stuff. Making sure you're getting those six to 12 hours of sleep per night. Making sure you're getting the general exercise. The Mayo Clinic Proceedings demonstrates that exercise is a powerful preventive for cognitive decline. Making sure that you're eating the micronutrient-rich foods. Again, that is why I no longer look at food as just like, do I want it? I don't really care if I want it. I want to know what it's going to do to me, right? Because I may want it, but is that desire that I feel on target with what my real goals are? And I don't want dementia. So you're going to see me as long as I can sipping the green juices and eating the berries and all the rest so that I can reduce those risks. But unfortunately for a lot of dementia, there does not appear to be radical improvements. There are some cases, some clinical scenarios and cases, the protocols like the Bredesen protocol, if you've heard of that, uh, appears that in some people to be some powerful effects, but not necessarily universal. Thanks. I don't know if you know the answer to this. I've asked a few of the doctors on, on the show and I keep asking new ones because nobody seems to know from Julia. Do you know how the nitric oxide levels compare in sprouts versus fully grown greens? I do not. That's a great question. But again, I don't, the vegetables themselves don't have nitric oxide in them, right? It's they have the nitrates in them. And then that's converted into nitric oxide by our body, you know? So, but that's a great question. Yeah. I don't know how we're ever going to find out the answer to that one, to tell you the truth. Okay. Let me see if that, I'll look in the chat to see. I actually have some more, but let's see if there's one in the chat. It always helps guys if you put four question marks first. Um, oh, here's an interesting one from Terry. My practitioner says I have familial elevated cholesterol at 300. I've been plant-based for eight years. Please advise. Yeah, I mean, so you want to make sure you check all the other markers that increase your risk of heart disease, right? All the inflammatory markers like your CRP and your homocysteine, along with, you know, your genetic markers for heart disease, your APOE and lipo, right? All of these different markers. Um, and then I think that it's worthwhile to get some anatomic data, right? So if you, you know, whether it be a calcium CT of your heart or whether it be an ultrasound of your carotids, and just seeing, do you have any significant anatomic heart disease at this moment in time? 
Because if you do, right, let's say you have a strong family history of heart disease and you have some demonstrated on that carotid ultrasound, uh, you may decide that, you know, the combination of food along with medications may be in your best interest uh, versus if you identify, hey, look, you have no significant heart disease that we can see anywhere on any of these tests and your body seems to be tolerating that cholesterol okay. Uh, don't forget that elevated cholesterol is just one risk factor. Along with it comes all the other stuff, the inflammation, the salt consumption, the stress, the chronic hypercortisolemia, uh, all of those things play a part. And so you want to make sure you're maximizing those other areas. But I would get the testing just to kind of look, right? As I say, test, don't guess, find the information and know if you already have developed some you know, verifiable heart disease. And if so, uh, make appropriate decisions from there. Great, thanks. Here's a question for me. Why do I wear a hat? Because I have a workout right before and I don't have always time to shower when the show's at nine. Now you don't usually wear a hat at 11. And also I get these hats as gifts from viewers. And so I like to wear them. Um, here's a question from Lindsay. What are your thoughts on drinking coffee and can this diet help anxiety? Not drinking coffee can help anxiety. That's for sure. <laughs> right. I am not an advocate of consuming caffeine uh, at all. Uh, and the reason why is because I've, I perceive it as a uh, another addictive substance that is used to compensate for unhealthy habits. So the per majority of Americans consume coffee to compensate for their poor sleep habits, right? That's why. There's that random one out of every 20 or 30 people who says, well, I just like the taste of coffee. That's all. But the majority of people go for this slurry of sugar, right? Along with their you know, caffeinated whatever of choice. And they're using it to compensate for the fact that they stayed up watching Netflix too late. Right? or they decided to go to bed at 1 a.m. instead of going to bed at 10 p.m. or 9.30 p.m. And they're chronically tired and fatigued. And then they're drinking caffeine throughout the day to compensate, or they're drinking the combination of caffeine with sugar and with fat together to just kind of stimulate their central nervous system. So I believe that our adrenal glands have no specific need for caffeine and that we shouldn't be consuming it. Now, if you choose to consume caffeine, my recommendation would be to consume it plain, meaning black coffee, uh, and limit yourself to less than one and a half cups a day, like one cup per day, essentially. And, uh, you know, that, so some people pull out the literature and say, well, it shows some improvements in cognitive function and mortality risk, you know, with several cups a day of coffee, uh, so on and so forth. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's also lots of negative side effects and potential risks, like you suggest with anxiety. So we know that caffeinated beverages actually increase heart rate, increase the risk of anxiety. Uh, and so for those of us who struggle with mental health issues, especially with anxiety, uh, caffeine should not be part of our daily protocol. Have you ever heard of something called the NAET diet? NAET? Yeah, NAET diet, because there's a question on what you think of it. I think it's for elimination of allergies. And when I Google it, it says you may eat brown or white rice, pasta without eggs, vegetables, fruits, milk products, oils, beef, pork, fish, coffee, juice, soft drinks, water, and tea. Doesn't sound very healthy. But it's not I, something yeah. you know about. It's, no, it is, yeah. no, it's, it stands for Nambudrapad's allergy elimination technique. That's yeah. some kind of, you don't know anything about it, right? I, I, nope, I am not familiar with it. I'm just pulling it up as well, seeing it there. So All right, I'll no. save it. I'll save it for the next guy. We got yeah. Dr. I mean, I mean, clearly we know right away that there are a lot of things that we wouldn't agree with, 
even just looking at, you know, sugar, salt, oil, fried foods are all on it, et cetera. I'd be like, okay, I'm out, right? Eggs, chicken, turkey, fish. So again, people like to hear good things about their bad habits, whether it be that somebody says, oh, it's this weird elimination diet. And look, we've checked your, you know, via kinesiology, we've checked how your body does with these. You, you can't, you can have these and not these, or whether it be that, uh, you know, people are spinning, you know, some sort of crystals over their food and saying, clearly, see, you're meant to have this and not that. It's, Look, the human body is universally across the board. Look at us. We lack claws. We have grinding molar teeth. We have weak stomach acid, long intestines, color vision, and we lack uricase. There's not a single carnivore on earth that has all of those features. And the overall majority of herbivores all have that. So clearly we're intended for the predominance of our diet to come from plants. It's just silly to suggest otherwise. And the majority of people who are told they can eat this and this you know, they do so because it's like, oh, well, I get to eat what I want kind of thing. And, you know, some people may get some better because anything is better than eating Mickey D's and Chick-fil-A all day, right? Absolutely. I saw something about CRP numbers here. What do you uh, recommend is the highest number for it? Well, I mean, CRP, the usual. Stephanie, yeah. Oh, to reduce it. How do you recommend reducing CRP number from Stephanie? Eating a whole food plant-based program, 1000%, you know, doing, if it's not dropping, doing a five day, nothing but green juice program or a therapeutic water fast, and you should expect your CRP to decline. Yeah, absolutely. Do you supervise those or your, do you, do you have inpatient care at your facility? So we have a nice little three, two house that we use where people come and juice kind of doing an independent stay though. We provide them all the produce they juice themselves. That's what we're doing right now. My wife and I actually were just talking before I got on this call that we're going to probably do some on the beach retreats as well. But those are a lot more expensive though. You stay in a big mansion, you get you know all your food prepared, all this sort of stuff. Uh, but we have a very low cost sort of just get away from the world, make fresh squeezed organic juice. We give you all the produce in a nice cold press juicer. I do come over and give talks, you know, et cetera. Um, so we've got that going on that people come to anybody who wants can research that on esserhealth.com on the Esser's Ranch page, but it's very simple, very laid back. Um, but it's a nice way to get away from the world. Do they get to play with the donkey and play tennis with you? Oh yeah, that's right. That'd be fun just to do that. <laughs> well, All right. Well, I know you have a hard stop, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your passion and expertise and for answering our questions. Absolutely. Great to always join you. Bye everybody. Take care. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time for Drs. Chala and Chala. They're the lifestyle docs. They're also going to be talking about lifestyle medicine, doing a Q&A. And if you guys like these earrings, these are handmade by Julie. She's a new friend of mine from my improv class. I could have her on the show. She doesn't have any way to take payment yet. She was at our conference. But look at this one. This is my dog, Bailey. She made it and it looks exactly like her. So if anybody's interested in uh, fruit and vegetable uh, magnets or earrings. I'll see if I can get around the show. So I just think they're so cute. I've got bananas, kale, and uh, carrots. She makes all kinds. Take care, everyone. Hope to see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.